0: You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it.
1: In the uh, world of cybersecurity, there's this uh, common term called insider threat, and it's kind of self-explanatory, but, you know, allow me just a moment. The term normally refers to a person inside of an organization who purposefully or accidentally damages that organization. Think of uh, Edward Snowden, right, the contractor. He worked for the NSA, you know, down in the United States, and he used his position and his credentials, his access to steal a mountain of sensitive information and then, you know, put it all over the internet. One of the worst breaches in US intelligence history came not from a malicious outside hacker, but from a person on the inside, someone who was trusted someone who is given access. A Harvard Business Review article about insider threats makes the compelling point that most businesses spend the majority of their time thinking about external threats. They're very careful to have you know, firewalls and things to, to help uh, prevent external hackers or those trying to steal industry secrets from them. But the threat from insiders is far less appreciated, far less guarded against, and therefore far more dangerous to the long-term health and success of a company. Now the church, the Christian church, is neither an intelligence agency nor a business, but I do think some similar principles apply because today we come across a church that has done a remarkable job at weathering external attacks. There's been fierce and, according to this, murderous opposition. And yet the church at Pergamum has survived, they've held fast to Christ. But at the same time, there's this malicious threat growing inside the church. And now Jesus calls to his church at Pergamum, and he's pleading with them, and he's warning them, the most dangerous trouble you face is not outside, but inside. See, this church at Pergamum, they've manned the walls, they've defended themselves from external attack, but something inside is rotten, and it's on the verge of taking the whole thing down. So if we're going to take this text kind of in five little parts. I couldn't get down to three. You know, sorry, we got, we got five little parts. There's an address. There's an encouragement. There's a rottenness. There's something going wrong. Uh, there's some options. Church has some options, what they can do. And then finally, there's rewards. But first, the address. Who speaks to the church at Pergamum? Well, you're like, well, Jesus does. Yes, you're very smart, very correct. But if you look at verse 12, how does Jesus describe himself? He calls himself, or he calls him, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, if you've been here in previous weeks, you may remember that Jesus often foreshadows the message he's going to give to the churches by the way he refers to himself in the opening line. At Smyrna, we did it last week, he said, I'm the one who died and came to life. And then later in his message to them, he says, be faithful unto death and thus inherit eternal life. Ephesus was similar. This image though is a little more mysterious. What exactly does it mean that Jesus Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword? Well, these Turkish believers were no strangers to two-edged swords. The Roman gladius, it was standard issue uh, sword to uh, soldiers of this era. It was a short sword, had a sharp tip, you know, so you could, you know, stab people with it, but also had two edges so you could fight with, uh, you know, slashing, cutting blows too. But Roman legions had used these gladiuses for, for centuries in their battles. But is Jesus coming to Pergamum swinging a gladius? Well, not exactly. Swords in the scriptures are usually symbolic. The writers almost never mean an actual sword, but they're often or almost always a way of referring to the scriptures themselves. For instance, the writer of the Hebrews describes the Bible as a a quote, a two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So basically he's saying the scriptures cut people figuratively, not literally cut people figuratively, they do spiritual work. Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians, take up the sword of the Spirit, and he says, which is the Word of God? He identifies it. And most importantly, in the first chapter of Revelation, Revelation 1, John already told us Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So he's not holding it, you know, in, in, in his hand. The fact that it's located in his mouth makes it clear it's symbolic for words or speech. So Roman gladius, not a bad place to start, but the sword Jesus holds or Jesus has, is the word he is speaking to the church. Now here's a quiz question. So Jesus is addressing the church at Pergamum. If all we had was verse 12, the words of him, who has a sharp two-edged sword, uh, does that foreshadow a positive or negative message to that church? Negative is, is the correct answer. Not every context, definitely in Revelation, the words he speak, if they're referred to as a sword, are words of judgment. And Jesus is slicing through some of the reasons, some of the excuses we often have to get to the true motives of the heart. Whatever he might say in commending this church, he will say some things. He is bringing a a word of judgment, a negative word, a word of warning. See, think about it. These Christians at Pergamum, they knew if if Roman soldiers showed up at night and, and banged on their door and they had their gladiuses drawn... That's bad news. Bad news when the, when the Romans have their gladiuses drawn in a similar way, when Jesus shows up with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, it's not going to be good news for this church. Now look, Jesus, often pictured by the scriptures as gentle and lowly. We read it in the summer book. If you read our summer book, having a heart of mercy, having a heart of love, having a heart for sinners and sufferers, that's all true. That's all true. But it's not all there is. See that he's also a God who cares for the purity of his church, he will not let them simply wander away. At times, he is a God who shows up with a sword, with a word of warning and of judgment. But before we get there, part two, the encouragement. Not all is lost in Pergamum, not everything has gone wrong, Jesus tells them he knows where they dwell, and it's where Satan's throne is. Now do you know that Jesus knows where you live? I think after this revelation series, we should make a long list or a graphic or something of all the things Jesus knows. Because we've done a whole bunch. Jesus says, "I I know the the poverty you're in, the tribulation you're in. I know how hard you're working. He knows all sorts of things. And today we learn he knows the neighborhoods or the towns or the cities that his churches find themselves in. He's not unaware of the particular challenges of each place, and he knows where you live. He knows your suburban neighbors." He knows those people who have that apartment above you. He knows where our church is. He knows where we meet. He knows the kind of neighbors and landlord we have right here. And he knows Pergamum. It's not in a gentle, quiet, you know, New England good Christian town or something. He says they find themselves living where Satan's throne is. It's like, ooh, that's pretty heavy. The mention of Satan right here uh, here, and at the end of verse 13 hints at some of the spiritual battles that are going on in the church, that, that angels are helping and assisting while Satan is hurting and wounding. And in this case, Jesus said, Satan is, is ruling out of Pergamum. Now, why would he say that? Well, let me just give you a brief background on Pergamum because you're probably not familiar. Um, it doesn't really exist in, in some ways anymore. So Pergamum's further north, further inland from Smyrna, and it was a cultural center. This is what it was known for. At one point, had the second largest library outside of Alexandria. It was a center for parchment production in the ancient world. They had an Acropolis you know, modeled on the, uh, the one in Athens. It was a wonderful city, somewhat sophisticated, very cultural, and it was also known for its extreme religiosity. It was the first city in Asia to have a temple for emperor worship. It was also known for the cult of Asclepius, which is the Greek god of healing, the one with like the snake on the, on the pole or whatever. Um, and it also had a, a large temple to Zeus, you know, chief of the Greek gods, as well as a whole host of, of minor temples. In short, Pergamon was known in the ancient world, especially in, uh, in, in, um, in Asia and in Turkey, as a, as a center for the worship of other gods. More than basically every other city in Asia, this place was rife with gods competing with Jesus, with the Christian God, for worship. Now, it still sounds harsh (laughs) to call a city the throne of Satan simply for having different religions kind of grates on our Canadian ears, does it not? But listen, the basic position of the scriptures is this. There are only two sides in the spiritual realm. There is Jesus and there is everyone else. And the Bible clearly teaches over and over, Jesus is not one of many roads to God. He, he is a God who will not permit any challengers to his throne. In different religions, we're not making our way up different sides of the same mountain. We are on different mountains altogether. And I think we don't need to patronize Jesus or, the, or the, any of the other religions for that matter by insisting, well, you're all basically teaching the same thing. We're, we're not, they're, they're not. We differ on the nature of you know, heaven, hell, sin, salvation, creation the end times character of God like and and so on and so forth many significant things I think we can respect other religions enough to both explain the Christian view as well as to hear from them their view and an emphasis on truth an emphasis on saying hey we don't agree on these things doesn't mean we cannot coexist with other religions of course we can it's possible to love and respect someone while also being honest But in the universe of the scriptures, there is team Jesus and there's team Satan and you are in one or the other. And you're like, there's gotta be a third team. Uh, The the Bible just does not have a third team as part of its worldview. And so Pergamum is a center of religious activity, much of it non-Christian and therefore, sort of in, in the worldview or the universe of the Bible, that makes it a center, a stronghold, a throne of Satan. And in this place, the church at Pergamum has held fast the name of Jesus. Despite all kinds of pressure from, from other religions, from the empire, uh, the Roman empire, the Christians have not given in, they have not given up their faith, even to the point that according to this, a man named Antipas has been killed for his faith. And the word for witness, is, it's a Greek word, martyr, it now it means in our parlance, a person who dies for their faith. So even when a, one of their own was killed, they refused to give up their faith. It's kind of an amazing testimony. It's actually kind of hard to imagine, if you kind of pause and and try to transport that into our mindset, it's hard to imagine one of you dying for your faith and and the toll that would take uh, on the rest of us just to come to to church, just to come to worship after something like that happens. So whatever else we want to like, you know, Pergamon has some things going wrong, but we can at least say this, they're tenacious, they're resilient, and they have held on. And Jesus commends them for it. But that takes us to part three, the rottenness. The sword Christ has is not in vain. We learn in verse 14, he has a few things against them. In short, while they've successfully resisted Satan from the outside, at the, at the very same time, they've been tolerating certain idolatrous practices within the church. Now, what are those? Jesus calls them the teaching of Balaam. And then down in verse 15, the, t- the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what does that mean? You're like, I don't know what Balaam's doing. I don't know who these Nicolaitans are. Uh, Let me give you some background. Balaam's story is found in Numbers 22. It's in the the, the Old Testament. And here is basically what happened. Israel has left Egypt. They're on their way to invading Israel, or invading the future land of Israel. And they had been conquering everyone who stood in their path. And eventually, they get close to this king named Balak, and he's the king of the Moabites. And he's terrified of them. He's like, we don't have a big enough army, they're gonna squash us, what can we do? He goes and hires this man named Balaam, who is known for his ability to curse other people. So Balak the king hires Balaam the magician to curse Israel. And Balaam's like, okay, pay me some money, I'll do it. And he goes to curse them, but God intervenes, sends an angel with a sword, by the way, to warn Balaam to stop. And I think it's one of my favorite Bible stories, but Balaam's trying to go, he's riding a donkey, the donkey ends up talking to him, he's like, there's an angel in the way. And so Balaam agrees to turn back, you know, with this angel blocking the way. But over the course of time, it's three or four chapters long, he goes out three times to try to curse them, each time God turns Balaam's curse into a blessing. So this whole cursing plan is backfiring. So finally, Balaam the magician, Balak the king are so frustrated. Balaam the magician, he has an idea. He's like, let's encourage the Moabite people to intermarry with Israel and, and and we'll slowly kind of lure them away. We can't, we can't get them with a direct assault. We'll kind of come in a side door. And that's exactly what happens. The Moabites can't win militarily, they can't curse them, and so they they entice them to slowly wade into the waters of sin. And through sexual enticement and other means, uh, thousands of Israelites are drawn away from the true God. And basically from that day on, the teaching of Balaam, that phrase, it's now kind of a code word for any teacher, any teaching that encourages the people of God to compromise their faith through sexual immorality, and in the case of Pergamum, eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, sometimes teachers are doing this because they're like, well, it gets me money, (laughs) Uh, and they do it for that reason. Sometimes they themselves are deceived, but wherever you find teaching that leads God's people to compromise with evil, that's, you know, in quotes, the teaching of Balaam. Not a direct assault, kind of like a side door, kind of like an insider threat. And by the way, sexual immorality, if you're like, well, what does that mean? That's mentioned there at the end of verse 14. from the Greek word porneia. It just means, uh, or it includes, doesn't just mean this, it includes intercourse with a person to whom you're not married, but really includes all kinds of sexual activity outside of marriage. Prostitution, bestiality, pornography, sexual touching with a person to whom you are not married, all these things are in view here. Also, eating food sacrificed to idols, something else these Christians were doing. In this case, what happened is sometimes food would be taken to a pagan temple and offered up to a god or to a goddess or or the emperor or whatever, and then they'd take that food and would sell it in the marketplace afterwards, or you'd go to the temple to eat it. And Paul argues in 1 Corinthians, we did this passage two years ago or something, it's not necessarily sinful to eat such food, but it sometimes can be, particularly when you know it's been offered to idols first. And Paul tells the Corinthians, don't knowingly participate with idols. Okay, that's a lot of backstory. There's a lot going on there to understand what these phrases mean. Let's let's put a few pieces together. What seems to be happening in Pergamum is that Christians, or some of the people of the church, were taking part in festivals and celebrations in honor of other deities or the emperor. They were teaching and believing that Christians are not only not barred from these things, they're free to take part. And during these celebrations, it's well chronicled by by all kinds of historians, there'd be feasting, there'd be eating, there'd be drinking, food offered to idols, and there would be plenty of forbidden, at least from Christian teaching, forbidden sexual behavior sleeping with temple prostitutes, adultery, fornication, all kinds of things. The kind of teaching that promotes such behavior is called the teaching of Balaam, teaching of the Nicolaitans. And some in Pergamum had said, this is okay. This is fine. From the perspective of Satan, I suppose, if you can't get them through a a direct uh, attack, you get them from the inside. A couple things for us to consider, I think. First of all, We must remember how difficult it is to call out friends, fellow church members, or church leaders when they are sinning. I think a church must keep in mind that external attacks, um, though they can have more obvious consequences, they're actually easier to resist and they're not usually what kills a church. It's actually pretty rare for a church to be destroyed from external pressure or from persecution. In nearly all cases, persecution leads to the growth of the church. It's much more common for a church to fall apart from the inside out, to compromise something essential, to begin to tolerate sin until it's too late. And, and before we get all huffy and sis, well, we would never do such a thing, think about how hard it would be to tell a good friend you think they are sinning. Think about how hard it would be to come to one of the, the leaders at, at this church and say, you're getting off track. See, when, when you do that, when you speak to a good friend or a church leader, or someone else at church, you, you're putting a lot of things on the line, not just your spiritual life, but, but friendships and community. And most often, the person you confront will neither agree with you nor be grateful. They're not like, oh, I'm so glad you've come to me. I'm so thankful. Like plenty of us have been through enough of church life to know when you confront a person on their sin, it is you who usually takes a beating for it. It's just really hard to do. It normally ends badly. That's something we must remember. It's not as easy to resist as we might imagine. And second, though, we must be aware of teaching that leads us towards compromise and sin. I think it's easy to stand far off from Pergamum and be like, glad we don't have any of that in our church. Now, look, to be fair, I don't detect much of this exact flavor of teaching, but are there any winds that are blowing us towards compromise with the world? Anyone just encouraging us to be greedy or to be envious of the lives of others? Anything that's leading us towards materialistic lives, saying, hey, it's okay to love money and love possessions. And there's plenty more. It's, it's, see, it's not just enough to guard against external attacks. We must be vigilant here with us. We must watch our own lives closely and to pray for the humility that if or when we are confronted that we will receive the correction. Jesus stands over his church at Pergamum and says, you are permitting false teaching in the church and it's not right and I'm not okay with it. He's saying people are are stumbling and tripping, there's a stumbling block that's been placed in front of people because the church is, is, is getting rotten on the inside. But that leads us to part four, which is the options. What can you do? This is happening. Okay, now we know. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Now, in Greek, it's actually repent, therefore. Just, they, they do their grammatic differently. But I always like that repent is just the first word. It's, a, it's the first option. And what does repent mean? It means to turn and go a different direction. That's the response Jesus wants from his church. He said, stop, stop doing this, stop this teaching, stop these actions, go a different way. You know, it's, it's interesting, for a long time in the North American church, sexual immorality was not treated as a sin to be turned from, but it was actually treated as a reason that people were, were kicked out of families and churches. I don't know what happened. For some reason, churches in Canada, and America especially, began to act like, well, sexual immorality, that's a different kind of sin, and that means we should treat a person horribly. Do you know that's not what Jesus tells the church? And it wasn't like this was some casual sin. This is very likely church members going to sleep with prostitutes at a pagan temple, or, or, or participating in a sexual party of some kind. It's, like it's not casual stuff. It's a fairly big deal. But when it, when it comes to sexual sin among Christians, what Jesus wants is repentance, not removal. And by the way, the repentance commanded in verse 16, I think it applies both to those in sexual sin, sort of the, the obvious ones um, and, and obvious idolatry and those who are permitting it to continue. See, the church is tasked with safeguarding the reputation of Christ, and therefore it should not permit those who continue in purposeful sin to bear the name Christian. And the church and its leaders must act swiftly to bring these people to repentance. And I think the church is erring by allowing it to continue. I think what Jesus intends here is... The whole church needs to repent (laughs) like there there are those of you who are committing the sin and and, and sort of deeply immersed in it and there are those of you who are standing by and watching it happen and not saying anything and both of you are at fault see Jesus as as a king has standards for his people and the first option is to repent and the second option is to not repent yeah it was pretty obvious maybe but still in verse 16 Jesus says if not If not, if you choose the no repentance option, what happens? Jesus says he's coming to make war against you with the sword of his mouth. Now you're like, that doesn't sound very pleasant. It's not. It's not intended to be. And it kind of goes back to what we said earlier about the Bible only presenting two spiritual options. It's kind of on display here. Either you, you return to Jesus in repentance or Jesus goes to war with you. Now, it's pretty scary as an individual. And I I think it's quite terrifying and sobering as a church. That, That if we do not treat sin like sin, if we do not deal with it, then it's not like, well, business as usual. No, we find ourselves fighting with Jesus. And in an interesting parallel, if you go back and read the end of the Balaam Balak story, You know how it ends? Well, first Balaam the magician is killed by the sword when Israel eventually has like a a war with Moab. That's not all that happens. God sends a plague on Israel and 24,000 people die. (laughs) It's kind of hard to imagine. And Numbers says it was a punishment for their sin. And all of a sudden, this sort of casual compromise with wrong teaching, like, ah, is it really that big of a deal. This, this sin in a Turkish church, it's like, ooh, this is a very different tone. Because Jesus says he's going to war with his people when they won't repent. And maybe that makes you feel uneasy. Maybe you get mad, frustrated. I mean, there's maybe a whole range of emotions that attend this kind of thing. There's all kinds of questions. <laughs> is this fair? Like, is this, is this really the way God works? I think what I would say to you is this, and same thing I must say to my own heart. Our sin, it's it's far worse, it has far greater consequences than we care to think about. I don't really want to think about how bad it is. And it's not God who must conform to our view of the world, but it's us who are being called by the scriptures to conform to him. The tweaking in your chest just tells you (laughs) we're we're not there yet. We, we, We have not yet seen the world as God does. We may have been saved, we are still in the process of being saved, as the Apostle Paul writes. Sin's extremely serious, and allowing it to go on means we put ourselves at war with Jesus. And I would not miss this opportunity to say, if today you find yourself at war with God, if today you find I, it's not right, there's been things that have been happening in my life, I've been letting it go on for far too long, I would just remind you of this. There is a great Savior to those who cherish sin for far too long. There is. As the Apostle Paul writes, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. So, I mean, you have a giant pile of sin? Okay, we have a gianter pile of grace. It's possible. You can come home. It's not too late. While we were still God's enemies at just the right time, Paul writes in Romans, Christ died for us. See, Jesus does not stand above Pergamum, you know, threatening his two-edged sword without also reminding them that today can be the day of salvation. He writes because he wants them to change. He doesn't want to fight them. He wants to lovingly gather them in. Finally, finally, Let's talk about the rewards. This is a curious set of things that are promised. Compared with Ephesus, compared with Smyrna, um, these are a lot harder to understand. <laughs> I'll give you my best shots, but I would warn you, it's a bit of conjecture, we, we, don't, we aren't quite sure. Jesus promises three things to those who conquer. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new secret name. And I'll give you my best research on, on these. Hidden manna, that phrase is only used once in the scriptures right here. This is is the only time it's ever mentioned. And in fact, manna is barely mentioned uh, in the New Testament at all. The most helpful reference, I think, is John chapter 6. Jesus is arguing with some Jewish leaders, and he tells them, uh, your forefathers, they ate manna in the wilderness and they still died, whereas Jesus now invites all people to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and those that do will never grow hungry or thirsty. Now, John 6 also has its own debates, but the essence of hidden manna, I think, it seems to be symbolic for a kind of fellowship and communion and participation with Jesus. Okay, that's hidden manna. What about the white stone? Well, white stones were normally used in two ways in Greco-Roman culture. First, they were given out to victors at, at Olympic games. And basically, it was a kind of ticket. You'd show it to get into like a victory feast later on. Um, and they, but they were, white stones were also used often in Jewish trials where, where if, if you were an eligible voter, you could cast a white stone in favor of acquittal, in favor of saying, no, this person didn't do it, you know, they're fine. So does white stone stand for a kind of victory? Does it stand for being vindicated in a trial? Or does it simply mean, you know, white often stands for purity? Does it something mean something to do with purity? Um, Chapter 19 of the book of Revelation speaks of the great marriage supper of Jesus, a feast to end all feasts, and perhaps this white stone is, you know, some kind of entrance to that event. Um, my best answer to what is the white stone is, we don't really know, those are like the three best options, I would say don't be dogmatic or hard headed about it, but all we know is those who are faithful are the ones who receive it. And then finally, on the stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now other parts of Revelation refer to Jesus having a new name that no one knows except him, but also says that he writes this new name on his people at one point. And and we do know that a name in in sort of the Bible world speaks of the essence of a person. It's not just something to yell across the room at your kid or whatever. And so perhaps we are being renamed by Jesus. Maybe we'll be renamed more in line with who we truly are. Maybe the secret name of Jesus will be written on this stone. Um, We're not exactly sure again. But here's what I will say. As confusing as these rewards may be, or as mysterious maybe is a better word. I think here's how it connects to the issues in Pergamum. Let me ask you this question. Why do people run to idols and sexual immorality? And, and, and more than sin, okay, that's not, that's, not, that's not enough an answer. Well, what reasons do we have that we do these things? I think we could argue that we run to idols, we run to other gods because we think they will give us something that we lack. Okay? We feel a lack of intimacy, we feel a lack of being known and of being loved, well, sex is a quick, if ultimately futile, way to meet that need. We feel ignored, we feel like no one knows the real us, um, and uh, no one knows the real us, so we experiment, we try on different identities, we try to find a place where we can express who we really are, or maybe we feel like we're missing out, we don't have friends, we don't have a community. Well, a big, raucous party celebration, that feels like a way to fill that need. I think if you look at what Jesus promises, I think these things are tailored for what the Christians at Pergamum feel like they are missing out on. They feel like they're they're, they're missing out on secret knowledge, or they feel like they are missing out on these glorious feasts because they are Christians. Jesus says, well, there's, there's a secret bread reserved for God's people. They, these, these people at Pergamum feel like they're missing out on intimacy, on, on being known and, and loved. And Jesus says, there's a stone and it's just for you. And there's going to be something written on it that only you get to see. And there will be a day coming when you'll be known and you'll be loved all the way to the bottom. See, if you can get inside the hearts and minds of these saints at Pergamum, I think it makes a lot more sense. They feel like they're missing out. They're holding on, uh, but dearly longing after all these experiences and though there's sin to be turned from, of course, Jesus wants to bring them real life and real joy. I think it might help to imagine verse 17 as a repicturing of something Jesus said in Matthew 19:29. This is what he said then. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And what Jesus is promising there, and what I think he's promising here, is whatever life takes because of Christ, I'm going to pay back. Whatever, Whatever you are giving up for the sake of him, Jesus is ready to reimburse, maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. And so to all here who are weary or worn out or sinful or broken, Jesus invites you, repent, turn to him, come, eat, drink, repent, and trust. I pray that God gives us ears to hear. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for this letter to Pergamum, which speaks of very serious matters, but I think does so in a hopeful way. Give us ears to hear, drill through any, any hardness, any stubbornness in our, in our hearts, and our souls, that we might hear what you are saying to the churches, that we might not be filled with pride or self-righteousness, but we might turn and seek you.